I'm Jamie. And I'm Nikisha. And this is Talking Horror with Jamie. And Nikisha. Where we share our love for spooky things and talk horror through the lens of human behavior. Welcome, guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And as part of our grief series, today we are talking about, this is a doozy, the 2018 supernatural psychological horror drama as told by Wikipedia. (laughs) Hereditary! All I do is worry and slave and defend you. And all I get back is that fucking face on your face. So full of disdain and resentment and always so annoyed. Well, now your sister is dead. And I know you miss her. And I know it was an accident, and I know you're in pain, and I wish I could take that away for you. I wish I could shield you from the knowledge that you did what you did, but your sister is dead. She is gone forever. And what a waste. If it could have maybe brought us together or something. If you could have just said, I'm sorry, or faced up to what happened, maybe then we could do something with this, but you can't take responsibility for anything. Woo! Yay! You should put very happy fanfare here. (laughs) (laughs) Such a positive, uplifting film. You know, it just got me started on my day when I started it at 10 (laughs) a.m. You watched this this morning at 10 a.m.? I did watch it. I had a full day. So if I didn't watch it in the morning, it was not going to be watched. So it was beautiful mm. to wake up to with my um, tropical smoothie smoothie. And- I was going to say, uh, a cult in the breakfast, breakfast cults. <laughs> Just a little bit of uh, avocado toast on the side of my beheadings. It's- yeah, sure. <laughs> Honestly, I've been dreading this movie because I knew that we were going to have to talk about it and I would have to watch it again. But before we get into all of that, first off, off. This movie was written and directed by Ari Aster in his feature film directorial debut. And it All started- hail Ari Aster! No. <laughs> <laughs> Be appropriate. <laughs> it stars the amazing Tony Collette, Alex Wolf, Millie Shapiro, and Gabriel Byrne. And our favorite uh, Lydia from Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) Well, and out is one of my favorites of all time. If you've never seen uh, the leftovers, Mm. she is truly spectacular in that as well. I'll have to put that on my list because I have not. I literally have only known her from this movie and Handmaid's Tale. And I'm obsessed with just those two viewings. So... Obviously, heavy spoilers <laughs> ahead. We've already kind of started, but any trigger warnings? I mean, the whole movie is a trigger for everything. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I don't even. I, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> um, you know, it's very unsettling. Uh, 
it's, I mean, I feel like literally sick to my stomach (laughs) having just watched it. Uh, I need to like coax myself down with this glass of wine that I'm enjoying. Um, but, uh, if, if that is the reaction that should steer you away from this, don't watch it. Uh, there's a lot of beheadings that happen in it. Um, the occult, if, if that freaks you out, this is not for you. Um, Child death. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of death. There's just a whole lot of death. Um, Yes. So yeah, death and the the occult, the heavings, all of the above. Random clicking noise. No. (laughs) Unsettled as a whole. Two hours of being unsettled. So before we fully get into into it, is there anything new that you have watched? Any trailers? Anything that you're excited about that is uh, coming up? Especially since so this we are is, getting close to Halloween. Yeah. So this is actually, for those of you listening, this is our first season two recording. So we're all super amped. Um, we decided to start out with the cheerful one. Um, <laughs> but we, um, so this is a little bit late, but, but, Jamie and I watched Freaky on HBO Max uh, this week. Mm-hmm. Um, super dug it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a weird one. It's it's same guy, same one who did um, Happy Death Day and all those. Um, oh, work okay, but um, has that similar feel to it. It's it's funny. It's clever. It's straightforward. It's enjoyable. Um, perfect like Sunday watch, if that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I probably, think it's, it was good. It was good. Like brunch watches, like, I don't know, like, you know, less, uh, less murdery, the traveling less pants, savvy. The sister, Yaya hood, but like, we like freaky. <laughs> I think those are two different things. I used to be obsessed no. with the sisterhood of the traveling pants. I was it's like, a, Oh, I'm going to find my concept. friends and I'm going to find my pants. And like, that's what it's going to be. <laughs> Even if it's not, I, I found, I, I mean, I found some really solid you know, high-waisted shorts, but, um, you know. Hey, send them my way. We'll make it work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I liked Freaky. It, I mean, obviously, if you're familiar with any of the, like, Freaky Friday things, that's essentially what it is at its core. But I still, I weirdly found it unsettling. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know why, because it's, like, obviously, you know, dark humor, but... Um, I don't know. It, it made me kind of uncomfortable, which I feel like is, you know, in line them mentioning that now before talking about something that's just like wholly uncomfortable. Well, I always get uncomfortable. We talked about it in another one as well. I always get kind of uncomfortable with like kind of body switching movies where one ver- one person is so much older than another one. So you have this like 40 year old male mm-hmm. with a with a teenage female inside and you have this like weird interaction because like he's interacting with all these teens and there's like it's just like super weird like in the context and it puts you in like very uncomfortable situations oh like in um we watched the freaky for for we watched freaky friday the musical version on disney plus and there are a lot of sequences in that that are uncomfortable because like th- this older woman is like now has a younger woman in her but she's also getting married and like there's these like icky combinations that you try to avoid but like it's kind of hard to avoid if you're going to stay true to the characters so this mm-hmm. one has some of those for me has some of those icky moments if that makes sense yes 
Yes, yes, yes. That reminds me, there's a movie and I... I can't even think of what it is, but it's it's not a horror movie, but it is that kind of switch. But it's a a male and um, an adult male and a teenager girl that switch bodies in some sense. I don't know. I have to try to find exactly what it is because mm. I'm seeing the actors in my head, but I cannot think of their <laughs> names at the moment, which is not helpful at all. But yes, this is basically the horror version of that. Mm. Yes, yeah. the male and a female. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I definitely enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. Okay. <laughs> That's now I'm like, how many body switching movies are there? Maybe I'll so just look many. up body switching movies and maybe I'll be able to find it. <laughs> yeah. There's also a body switching movie. I think I forget his name. Maybe David Duchovny is in it where like his wife dies, but his wife is then put into his wife and his daughter get into a car accident and then his wife's soul goes into his daughter so it's this like very uncomfortable movie with like weird sexual tension that is like not cool and gross yes i do not remember the name of it (laughs) oh wait are you thinking of the hot chick that's what i got i just found oh my god (laughs) yes that's what i've just found it's hot chick (laughs) what the heck with rob schneider and rachel mcadams Oh my God. Ooh, what a movie I haven't thought about in forever. Right. That's literally, I was like, Rob Schneider. That's who I was seeing in my head and I could not think of his name, but that's it. Hot chick. Wait, apparently there's a body switch movie where it's called The Shaggy Dog, where Tim Allen switches bodies with a dog. Oh, yes. I've heard of that. Yes. That's a thing. <laughs> Does yeah. that yeah, doesn't totally. even count? Does like does that count or like does a thirteen going on thirty count where it's like you're you're waking up Fair. younger? I I don't know or older. I guess I actually haven't seen thirteen going on. I mean years. that's a good question. Like a mm-hmm. body, there are two types of body switching movies. There's like there's like that actual flip flop where you're in somebody else's and someone's in yours. Or like big, he just yes. became big. Mm. No one took his younger body. He, his body just grew up as as older. Right. Wait, what about Face Off? I haven't seen Face Off. Oh, oh my God, Nikisha, you have to see Face Off. Yeah, Face Off is like a different part of that like body switching triangle because like... They're not because, like, really switching bodies, they're switching No, faces. they're not. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> their faces are switching. Um, yeah, <laughs> I guess it's like... Work? I guess it's... Oh I my God, Nikisha, you have to see this movie. Nicolas movie Cage and John Travolta... Swap faces. Switch faces. <laughs> I've heard of this. I've just never watched it. And now I need to find it and watch it because what? Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but additionally, we're going to cover it in season two because this fits in with our, it very severely fits in with our grief theme that we're doing for season two. Um, Jamie and I saw the night house in movie theaters. Right. Yes. Yeah. But we're, um, huge thumbs up from us, but we will, um, we'll definitely Chat talk about, about it on either. this podcast. Yeah. 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 So excited. How was the the theater? Was it packed? Like, how was that experience? Was it okay. I think yeah. it was pretty busy. It was a smaller theater though. So uh-huh. it didn't have, it wasn't like, um, uh, the, the big like Dolby theater. So it was definitely like cozier, but I think mostly sold out if i remember there was also like a baby there which yeah uh, someone brought that baby that seems like a weird a weird thing to do i guess we can't find a babysitter so we're just gonna take our baby to this horror movie that you'll probably see through anyway so it's fine well 
on that note, Nikisha, have you watched <laughs> anything? <laughs> I have not. I'm also just living for what you guys have been watching. Honestly, not horror related at all, but definitely mental health related. I have started BoJack Horseman. I'm on season two. Yes. Mm. And it has just given me all of the feeling feels as far mm-hmm. as the performance aspect of it and being in the industry as an actor and sure. dealing with auditioning and trying to make your quote unquote comeback and also just like the mental health and the family issues. Like it's so beautifully made and such genius work that I don't understand how I have not lived without seeing BoJack Horseman. Also shout out to the random guy that I met on Hinge that told me about BoJack Horseman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, we talked about night houses. So let's talk about all of the houses in uh, Hereditary. All of the houses, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw. um. (laughs) I wish. I would feel a lot better if I just watched any Harry Potter movie. (laughs) Absolutely. I guess we'll get into the uh, two-minute plot summary and not it, Jamie. Uh, Wait, does Brian want to do it with his new mic? He sounds so, his voice sounds so uh, wonderful and and strong. Yes. I'll I'll do it if somebody... uh, I'll, I'll time, yeah. All right, Jamie's got it. Sure. What's the plot? <laughs> I'm ready whenever you let me go. All right. <clears throat> On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so Hereditary opens up with an obituary, really setting the uh, really setting the tone. Um, in that obituary, like apparently all the men in that family like bite the dust way before the women. Okay, so then we open up on this family who their grandmother just died, and they're all really confused about it. They're not that sad. They didn't really have a good relationship with her. Um, flash forward to the uh, daughter uh, Matilda who is um, uh, original Matilda on Broadway and she has a peanut allergy, nut allergy. And in a scene that we fast forwarded this time because we could not watch it again, um, she is beheaded because the sun um, is high and, and all of that fun stuff. And then he leaves her in the car. The mother finds her and the mother is totally distraught. The father is trying to keep things together. The mother is also a model maker in Tony Collette um, in one of her greatest performances of all time. And she has a lot of those um, long story short she goes to this uh group help session uh to help her through some of these deaths she meets this woman named joan played by ann dowd the great ann dowd she goes to her house a couple times um and she is you know trying to help her through this long story short they end up doing a seance and um Something goes a wacky in that seance. The father explodes into flames. The son, <laughs> something's bothering him. We don't really know. She finds the dead previous to the flames. She finds the dead mother's um, body in the attic. And then the she be she ends up being possessed. We find out that the, the grandmother was in a cult um, and Joan was her like right-hand lady. And they've been trying to get the possession of the son um, through, and they originally possessed Charlie, but she was a girl and girls can't hold the demon Paimon. So long story short, at the end, the mother ends up beheading herself and the cult uh, gets gets Charlie and Paimon into um, the boy, Peter, and um, they all hail him in the really, really cool tree house in the backyard. And um, that is hereditary. Time's up. Oh! You did it! <laughs> and that's the plot. <laughs> So good. 
just, you know, people dying. Basically, everybody dies. That is the plot. Everybody dies except for Peter. And now he actually does technically die. He is the, what, the eighth, the eighth god of hell or something? Isn't there like eight? Yeah, the eighth king. The, the eighth, eighth king, king of hell. Yeah, or, no, they say one of the eighth king. One of yes. the eight kings. Yeah. Insane. Okay. So starting from the beginning, because I feel like this is not our first time watching this. Tell me if it's your first time uh, and just initial thoughts. Jamie, we'll start with you. So I have seen this movie before. This is my second viewing. And I I did a lot more like researching of some of the things that I remembered from the first time that I watched it because there was elements that I think I definitely picked up on way more in this viewing than I did the first time. Um, the first time it's, it, I mean, it's just, there's so much tension building. I feel like I, that's like my go-to in describing all of these horror movies, but like truly I'm not joking about like how uncomfortable I feel currently in the present moment, having just finished watching it because like you're carrying so much of the weight like internally. And I really think it speaks to how, how incredible Ari Aster is at, at making you feel like the, the pain and the weight of the guilt that this family is going through the guilt and the, the processing of grief and like all of this stuff that, that they are actively experiencing until it gets really, you know, occulty and supernatural at the end. Um, but like you are feeling what they're feeling and, and also like confused and also traumatized. Um, and there are these moments where you're like, are they going to, are, are things going to get better for them? Tony Collette is, is really insistent that she's the only one that can stop this and fix everything. And you almost believe that that's how it's going to be resolved. And then it just keeps getting worse. And then you, you're feeling helpless. And, and I think that's, it's just so powerful. And, and like, I felt really helpless and hopeless watching this movie, even the second time knowing everything that goes into it. Um, but it's just, oh God, it's, it's a really incredibly powerful film. It's going to go on my list of things that like, I'm not going to watch more than the number of fingers I have on one hand, because it's just, it's just a lot to, to experience and sit through, but incredibly powerful in more ways than one, um, in, in reflecting on like the grieving process. So yeah, I'm very, I'm very affected by this movie right now. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I definitely agree. I was on my first tour when I watched this movie and we went to a midnight showing after a show mm. in a random city. I, I can't even remember when, but me and my friend Erica were like, yeah, we're into horror movies. Let's go see this hereditary at like 1145 at night in this random city. And the way that it affected my entire being, all of my insides was quite ridiculous to the point where I sat with this movie for about three days after I watched it and just experiencing it in a theater as well, like not in the comfort of my own home. So it's just like something that I definitely just carried with me and knowing that I would never watch this movie again, like I said before, until I would have to do it for this podcast speaks <laughs> to 
how this movie can affect people in whatever way, even if you don't really get the grief aspect of it, just the anxiety of it. And briefly in watching some of the interviews from Ari Aster, he basically said that this movie was a drama first to him, not a horror movie. So he wanted to make a family drama and then add elements of horror, which I think is even more genius because you're sitting there thinking, this is a horror movie. I'm expecting certain things to happen. I'm expecting certain things to go a certain way and nothing is is really kind of happening until the end. You don't really know what's going on. You can't really guess what's happening until the last 20 minutes. And that just set my anxiety on a thousand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So on top of all of the horror movie elements and the beheadings and some of the very visceral uh, visuals that are given in this, it was something that, again, like you said, Jamie, will never like, and like you said, Brian, will never leave my mind. So this is also my (laughs) second time watching this. And I will I don't want to keep this is something that I don't want to continue to watch again but I think that that mm-hmm. is something that's great about the movie because it sits with you so well that you don't need to watch it again you watch it one time and it's like okay I know what this is about mm-hmm. and this is excellent and I can appreciate it for what it is but it's some, it's not like you know get out where I watch 80,000 times because it's it's also great but it's just a different unsettling and mm-hmm. a different it's a it's a different subgenre of the horror movie franchise that I think Ari Aster just pinpointed directly bullseye uh, in its effectiveness. So yeah, how about you, Brian? Yeah, I don't have to have to watch this one again um, for for good reasons. This was my second time seeing it. It was fascinating this time because the first time you're trying to put all the pieces together and there's a lot of pieces and it's kind of not hard to follow but you just like your head gets clogged you're trying to pick you're trying to figure this out and then you see all these little things on the wall and then you see you know and then like you have that extra layer of like are all the establishing shots actually shots of her models are they actually shots of this so that's another layer of symbolism on top of that then you're then you're drawn into the the drama aspect the human emotion emotions that that one of my favorite scenes is that dinner scene where they're finally erupting um and you have all of that then you have all the occult stuff on top of that once it's presented to you so there's just so much happening and what i really like about this movie is this is a movie in which it it never feels like a twist it always feels like a reveal in this movie because okay so i became obsessed with this during this viewing which is the um the when at the very beginning when the class is talking about heracles yes and of some of us know him better as hercules but heracles is son of zeus um you know bless my soul herc was on a roll but he was also <laughs> um but he you know this the concept just the the high level concept of like was this destined to happen or did he just even if he had paid attention to all the signs around him and you and then the second time watching this i was always like was this always going to happen to this family or were they just like completely blind to all the signs around them because like she ignores the mat at Joan's house. She brings it up, but just ignores it. She ignores, she even writes the little um, words in her model on the wall, but she just ignores them in real life. She she doesn't even open the boxes that her mother had left that like, after she dies. Like, all of this stuff is just too late. Um, those are just some of the examples. And then obviously you see the 
the icon, the the you know the whatever that like whatever the, the symbol, uh, symbol of the, the three symbol. Head. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which this time you noticed is on the telephone pole, mm-hmm. which. All of those things were fascinating the second time, but I, I do not need to see this a third time. Absolutely not. And just mm-hmm. getting into uh, things that we liked, let's just kind of elaborate on some of the things that made this movie effective. And one of the things that this go around, like Brian was saying, looking at all the foreshadowing things, and one of the things that stuck out was that Heracles story and the fact that the student was saying that it's worse because they have no hope because everything was meant to happen. And so they have no control over anything. So even if we're ignoring the signs or or paying attention to the signs, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the destiny was that this was going to happen. So there's no hope for the characters at all. So you kind of see in the foreshadowing that it's going to be a not happy ending, which is like beautiful. And it made me kind of pay attention to more of the stuff in the background. Cause I love how Ari Aster will have things that, that seem like they're just background noise, but there are things that are leading you uh, to what's going to happen later on. And I love his sense of playing with shadows. And a lot of the times I was looking and seeing what is in the shadows, because we talk a lot about the YouTube video that talks about what makes a good jump scare. Yeah. And one of the things is the use of lights and shadows and what the camera is focusing on. And so even if you have a wide shot of something, but only a little part of the of the focus is lit or someone is lit, like there's something in the shadows. And so there are so many YouTube videos of like things you missed in Hereditary <laughs> that I watched. Sure. And, and one of the moments was when Peter was in the bed and his mom was just kind of like hovering in the shadows on the mm-hmm. ceiling before she actually makes her uh, reveal or when the camera chooses to reveal her. And I think that's just genius what the camera chooses to reveal and what it doesn't. And it just speaks on his genius eye uh, for having you kind of like look beyond. So the second time around, I just kept like looking in the shadows and trying to see sure. uh, what I missed and if I could pin some more things uh, together. Because like you said, Brian, the first go around, you're just kind of trying to follow the story uh, because they definitely talk about in an interview uh, horror tropes that don't get played out that I thought was really interesting. So there's just like the horror trope of sleepwalking, but there's nothing that really comes about sleepwalking. And then there's like the horror trope of the little miniature um, sets of, of people, but nothing really kind of comes of that. And then it ends up being just, it's an occult <laughs> at the end. And so I think that was really cool that you have like little droplets of things for horror movie fans. But like you said, Brian, it's not a twist. It's just a reveal of like, but actually this is really happening. And yeah. it's really fun. If I could add on to what you said, I also yeah. think that the idea, so when she's up on above his bed and even when she's behind him in the living room, when he's staring at his burnt father, mm-hmm. um, it's, it takes you a second, but it's obvious that she's there. It's not like t- totally trying to hide in the shadows. Like you said, it's just like, if you're not focusing on the right thing, you're just not going to see it. But there it's, it's clearly not like Mike Flanagan trying to hide a ghost in the background. Right. Like, that's yeah. totally different. However, because of that, and exactly what you're saying, the jump scare right after that, where she's in the corner, comes out from the corner of the house. 
um, that subverts your expectations because you see her in all those two before then, but you do not see her in that scene. So when she jumps out of there, you're not expecting it because they've shown her the last two times right. um, in the frame. So like that, that alone, again, you talked about lightness and darkness earlier, like that very much obviously is done on purpose. Um, but definitely, man, so good. And, and you started talking about the, um, the models and this, yeah. I, Jamie and I mentioned that like, this was the second model movie we've watched after the lodge. Um, <laughs> yeah. and like, like that was, and, but the, but the, and, and we didn't talk about it, but obviously the models were used in blind manner as well. But, um, I really enjoyed the use of models in this and how different it was than the lodge. Um, I'll let, I'll pass it to Jamie to talk a little bit about like the kind of the, the symbolism and kind of like disassociation with, with the models. Yeah. Like it's so interesting. I mean, <clears throat> Tony Collette's character has been through so much stuff. Like she's lived this life of grief and the, <clears throat> like the way that she's processed some of these events and her relationship with her mother um, at the funeral, the way that she's like talking about her experience with her, with her daughter, when her daughter was born and her allowing her mom to have a relationship with her daughter. Um, she talks about her mom wanting to like feed her daughter with this like degree of distance and, and like kind of speaking about it, like it's cold and, and like, is not as impactful as we later realize when you see this full scale model of what she's actually referencing, where her mom was trying to breastfeed her, her daughter, um, which like, you don't even see it for that long. It's in a model form, which is even more confusing, but yeah. it's like the, I, I think it really speaks to like the, um, like the trauma that Tony Collette's character has experienced and the way that these memories have like burned into her, like these flashbacks. And she kind of like using the models as a way to, to put the flashbacks and like keep the distance from her. I think like that's, that's what I took from that. Like all of these moments, even the moment where she recreates the death of her daughter and her husband comes in and is like, what are you doing? Like, what do you think your son is going to think or feel when he sees this? And she's, she's again, like not emotional in talking about it. And she's like, what do you mean? This is just a neutral version of what happened. And it's like, this is how she processes the most traumatic experiences in her life is through her, through her work and through her art. And, and just the fact that her art is, is miniatures. Um, it's so like, it's so visceral seeing her use this craft to process her own traumas. It, it, it's like, it's so fascinating to me. And then there was another one that's like, uh, it was less um, detailed, but when in the scene, when she's trying to bring her son and her husband to do the seance for the first time in their home, you see there's two different models. One of them is like a dilapidated house, like shack or something, which I don't know if it was their house. Cause later in the movie, you see it lit up inside the tiny model. Um, and there's like boarded up windows and stuff. But before they show that they show this like really wild one where it's a bunch of houses like stacked on top of each other, but also most of it is underground. And I, 
I didn't even have like enough time to process that one. But like, I, I just imagine it's just like her experiencing these series of incredibly traumatic grief time over and over again between her father, her brother, her mother, and then her daughter. And like all of those things just like, you know, is all kind of underneath the surface maybe of what she's like going through and, and trying so hard to like keep it together. But, um, which even I think is reiterated. I know this isn't about the miniatures anymore, but uh, I think Brian, you mentioned that scene where they're at the dinner table and it's like really tense until they have this blowout. And I wrote down what Tony Collette said because I thought it was so like wild and just really stuck out to me where she says, what a waste if, if it could have brought us together, speaking about the death of her daughter. Um, it's like, what trying to figure out like, what was she looking for out of, out of another another trauma that she now has to grieve and like the hope that that would have created some kind of like closeness within the family. But I also feel like, is that something that ever would have happened kind of going back to the, like what this family was destined for? Like, you know, she didn't have a close relationship with her mom. So like, who's to say that she was ever going to have a close relationship with her own family. Um, and when she didn't even want her son. Yeah. Talk about that. Oh, that, well, I'm okay. Before I get ahead of myself, since we're already on the grief track, Jamie, let's give a general definition of grief. We already have talked in previous episodes about the stages of grief, denial and anger and depression and acceptance and bargaining and all that stuff. But give us the most general definition of grief. And let's just talk about like how this family is going through these stages of grief or trying to go through these stages of grief. Yeah. So grief is basically like the, the process that happens as a result of some kind of loss. And it's like the, the pain and emotions that, that come along with experiencing any kind of loss. And so, um, you know, we, there's this, uh, theory around like the stages of grief and there's five of them. Um, and it's whether they, I should, I should know this, um, anger, uh, denial. <laughs> Thank you. Denial is yeah. the first one. Denial is the first one. Only cause I looked it up. And it was <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I know acceptance and depression and, uh, bargaining. Not, is the fifth yes. Bar- I almost said begging. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, that's not it. But also that song has been really popular on TikTok. So you can throw that song in Brian. I'm begging, begging you. Yikes. Begging like uh, Four Seasons? <laughs> yeah, but there's like, it's like a new hip version. Wait, what's it called? Yikes. Begging. 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 I'm begging. Begging you. Oh, okay. But okay. you love well, also, yeah, If I can also add um, uh, something else about grief. Uh, what is grief if not love persisting? Persevering. It's oh persevering. Oh, I messed it up. Oh, thank it's you. Fine. Do you want to take that again? <laughs> if I can, <laughs> if I can also add something about grief, uh, what is grief if not love persevering? As is love by persevering? The as <laughs> the, the, all the visions said by the right. vision in Wanda Vision. 
All right. Um, so these five stages of grief. So, <clears throat> um, I, I mean, this is like one idea that like, you know, there are these stages of grief in order to like understand what the process is like of bereavement, but also I, you know, that doesn't apply for everybody. Also like all of our individual processes and, and the trauma of grieving, like not, no process is linear. So you know, if you're expecting to be like, oh, I am no longer in denial. Now I am angry. That's probably (laughs) not as likely as maybe you want it to be having experienced some kind of loss. Um, But the reality is that uh, the grieving process affects people in all kinds of different ways. So there is no like, you know, set list of like, this is what this experience is going to be like, which makes it a lot harder for people to, you know, get through it and and work through it and find the support that they need. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's hard. Yeah. And speaking of support, cause I, in watching this and the group therapy that Annie, uh, gets to try and have some semblance of uh, connection with the grief that she has. How do you feel? And any, both of you can answer, but how do you feel about like trauma bonding? Cause we talk, a, well, not we, us as in we, but I hear a lot about in like relationships and a lot of people are like bonding in relationships because of trauma, but that can be kind of like controversial, but we have group therapy though. And we're bonding with strangers to form some form of connection so that we can and kind of know that we're not alone in what we're feeling and also being able to, to talk through things. So how do you feel about like group therapy as a way of like bonding with trauma, if that makes sense? Yeah. I mean, well, in terms of the group therapy, I, I like, I view that as a space where people have a shared experience, like the experience of loss, even though like what they are personally going through might look different. And like the context and circumstances around that loss might look different that having support from other people really like empathy and compassion because other people have experienced that same, the same type of loss, like they've experienced some kind of loss. And so like coming together to, to offer support in that way, trauma bonding is, I think a little different in terms of, um, kind of it it can impact a relationship differently like it might accelerate a relationship or friendship um because two people or multiple people have have had a traumatic experience and even though you haven't like you know experienced the relationship for very long it can feel like having gone through and survived some kind of traumatic ordeal that that you know fosters a sense of closeness with this person, um, that that's like more of the trauma bonding. So I don't, I mean, I imagine that maybe there could sometimes be overlap, um, potentially, but I think trauma bonding is more associated with like unhealthy relationship dynamics. Right. Um, right. yeah, that's why I was like, I mean, it's, it feels similar because it is a shared experience, whether it's trauma bonding or group therapy. So Mm -hmm. it just had me thinking of like, okay, well, how, how do we see it as controversial in a relationship setting as opposed to just in, in group therapy? Yeah. I, I think like with the group therapy, it's like in an effort to like hold space for and, and like help people process these, these 
losses that they've experienced or like whatever the group therapy context is for. Um, but like holding space together and, and really like empathizing and being like, Oh, I'm, I'm here with you. Like, I know what that's like. Like if you, if you're really telling somebody that you know what their experience is and offering support in that way versus like, we both went through this like really wild thing together. And now we, now we are, are kind of, you know, this close unit. And also I think that there's more distress when you try to like separate from that person. Like there should hopefully be less distress if you're like leaving group therapy. Right. <laughs> it might be distressing yeah. to not have the therapy, but like you can continue to seek support in other ways, but it shouldn't be distressing like, you know, constantly. Right. No, that totally makes sense. And now going back to when we were talking about Annie grieving her mother, but not really grieving her mother because of their relationship. And as opposed to Annie now talking to her son and saying, hey, I didn't even really want to have you in the first place. And you made a great point, Jamie, of the fact that how can Annie try and have this connection with her kids when she's not even connected with her mom? Do you think that that dynamic is genetic as, you know, coming in and not having that relationship with your mom? And so how do you know how to be a quote unquote good mother because you don't, you didn't have the tools and now you're forced to have a kid when you didn't want to have a kid and you have to kind of deal with that. So, um, I don't know exactly what my question is, but it was just like an interesting way to see Annie kind of like trying to pull for her family. But I guess, is it kind of a genetic thing like, or inevitable to happen that she wasn't going to have a good relationship with her kids because she didn't have a good relationship with her mom? Maybe you're asking, is it hereditary? Yeah. <laughs> All of this is, is hereditary. Well. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> a big, a big woof. Well, of, <laughs> Annie was talking about in the group therapy that her family suffered from like DID, which they didn't say, what is D what is DID? That's disassociative identity disorder. It was formerly referred to as multiple personality disorder. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was that dementia, uh, psychotic depression, which I didn't know that that existed. What is that? what is the difference between psychotic depression and regular depression? <laughs> um, I mean, basically, what it sounds like depression with the with the added uh, like symptoms of psychosis. So you could you could have depression and also like as a result of the depression, have symptoms of uh, hallucinations and delusions, which yes, is also different also, from schizophrenia, which they mentioned. Which they also mentioned, schizophrenia. So it's just like... Also, it's hard for me not to smile whenever Tony Collette talks about DID, because that's what United States of Terror was about, where she has <laughs> DID in that. So that's always that. I mean, I know that has nothing to do with this, but I just wanted to. No, but that. everyone should watch United States of Terra. Everyone. I enjoyed it very much. That um, was a quarantine binge for us. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. I'll, I'll yeah. get into it. I have not looked at that. Quick tangent. We're going to have to do Sixth Sense because you haven't seen it. And Tony Collette was nominated for an Oscar for that stuff. So, like, Nikisha, really we'll get to it. Okay. How did I did not know <laughs> she was in Sixth Sense. I mean, I think, I think we mentioned that before, but I forgot. Oh, okay. She's just fantastic. Okay. Well, out of all of those that we named, 
Jamie, are all of those, can all those be genetic? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, mental illness in the fam in family history, like definitely plays a role. Um, but I think it's, it's more of like, you are at an increased risk of potentially developing or having any of these disorders or illnesses. It's not like, you know, just because her brother had schizophrenia doesn't mean that she's going to have it like a hundred percent or just because like, uh, her father had DID doesn't mean that she's going to have it a hundred percent or like, you know, it's not always exactly like the math isn't always exact. Like a equals a B equals B. It could be like, you know, uh, a parent having like having depression and you could be at like an increased risk of anxiety or something like that. So like it can, it it generally, I think is just like an increased risk, which is why like, you know, when therapists or, or psychiatrists, mental health professionals who like do intakes for therapy and other like mental health services will ask you about your family history to get a sense of like, could some of that also be related to whatever experience you're having? Yeah. Which it also draws me to the point of if you grow up knowing that your family has been going through all of this, is there a way to kind of combat it head on before it could evolve into something potentially, or is it just something that, like you said, because A doesn't equal A, it could not be a thing. And so it, you don't really approach it until it becomes a thing, which is also kind of just depressing. <laughs> that. <laughs> That you can have all of these things and there's no like, you know, like, oh, your family has diabetes. So like, you know, to kind of watch what you eat because that Mm -hmm. could affect you. But with mental illness, it's like, yes, it could, it couldn't. You don't really know how it could manifest as well. It could manifest itself in different ways and you don't really realize it until it might be too late. So it's just kind of, again, that theme of this family was just destined to have no hope because they all (laughs) have, you know, had all of, all of these things. So also going into um, talking a little bit about shock. So, Before you, before you go on with that, I also wanted to add that Jamie had a really interesting comment while we watched the movie where, yes, not to, not to like, not to say that schizophrenia is not real and she didn't, and, and the brother didn't have it, but like they're, they don't say it outright, but maybe the mother was trying to put the demon into the brother and the voices that he was hearing was from trying to be the human body that the demon would take. And that's why he took his own life. That's 1000% what the movie is trying to say. Mm. That, 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 that that's like what, what his experience was because to go into like what the uh, paymon is and in the book, they explicitly even say like, it has to go into a male heir, which is why the grandma couldn't be it. But she designated herself the queen, Queen Lee, I think it was. I Like I said, I did a lot more digging and research into like the lore of whatever was going on in this movie, but it had to be a male host. And so she tried to put, the, the grandmother tried to put uh, paymon into her son, Tony Collette's brother. And so her, the, the suicide note that she was referring to, um, 
is, is literally that. So I, I also, but I thought that that was such an interesting representation of like what could also be perceived as symptoms of schizophrenia. But sorry, I cut you off, Brian. But that's like genius. <laughs> the fact yeah. that. So then do we think that the grandfather was the first one to have it? And when he died, when his, when his mortal body died, or they just have been trying to bring him back for years. I think that it had to be part of uh, that family, like bloodline. And so it couldn't be, it couldn't be Tony Collette's father because he was not blood related mm. to uh, the grandma. So sure, it sure. could, but it couldn't be Tony Collette because she was a woman, which is why in that weird uh, sleepwalking nightmare Tony Collette has, she says, I didn't want to have you. I was pressured to have you by my mom because the mom wanted her to, to have a son. She did have a son, but at that point their relationship was tense. And so she didn't allow her son near the grandma so she allowed the daughter near the grandma. The daughter, my understanding is the, that Paymon is in Charlie, is in the daughter. Yeah. Um, but that's not a suitable enough host. I think that the grandma tried to like make it work to the best of her abilities. But ultimately, the goal was to put Paymon in Peter. Um, and they so did mention that. the fact that the grandmother was trying to get to the son, but Tony Collette's character and her mother weren't speak on, on speaking terms. So she didn't really have a connection with her mom until she had Charlie, the daughter, mm -hmm. and then they reconnected. And so the grandmother spent most of her time with Charlie as a baby mm -hmm. and the whole feeding thing, which was also really confusing because how could she breastfeed her? That's, how is that biologically possible? Okay. Um, but, <laughs> but that's, and then that's why Charlie was like, she, grandma wished that I was a boy. Yes. Because, because then also, everything would have worked out. Right. Charlie. And also Charlie has a name that could be a male or female. Right. Uh, name, which, you know, is, 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 I wonder if her grandma had some like say in what the name was and things like mm. that. Also, you know, this, um, uh, Jamie also had mentioned this, but I didn't want to forget it is like when she was sleepwalking also. And she tells the story about how with the paint thinner and lighting them on fire and stuff like that, like subconsciously she knew what was happening and was trying to stop the demon from getting into it by like subconsciously wanting to kill her own spawn. To like she didn't say she that. wanted to hurt them. She explicitly right. said, I wasn't trying to hurt them. Yeah. Again, also go back to the Heracles where it's like, how much were they paying attention to all the little clues around them and how much was just like, this was always the end game. Which it seems like there, there was no escape. I mean, because either way, they were either going to die by the hands of the cult or they were going to die and at least have their souls free and not be possessed or, you know, part, part of the cult. So either way, the ending was not going to be good for them, which again, sad and tragic. Mm -hmm. yeah, that uh, sweet, sweet shimmer. That's what I called it. The shimmer. The Whenever shimmer. You see that, like glow. Yes, the light. And I think yeah. that was also genius. The fact that he's using light as evil. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
which was something totally. that was like, oh my goodness. Okay. So all of the light. And I also enjoyed the still shots of the house. And then when it turned from dark to light or light to dark. The transitions. The yeah. transition was beautiful. And it's just like, ah, oh, how do you think of these things? This is so unsettling and great at the same time. Uh, but the last thing I wanted to ask you about, Jamie, was on the idea of like shock and, you know, fight or flight and all of those things. So when Peter is driving his sister home and she does get decapitated and he just kind of sits there and doesn't look back and just keeps going and then just leaves her there, goes into his room, sleeps and just waits until his mother finds her, which is so cruel, so insane that he, and why Tony Collette was yelling, like, you could have just said you were sorry or like confronted me at the beginning and it wouldn't have been this much of a family issue. Um, but talk to me about what, what that kind of intense shock can do to people. Like, what can that reaction be? Yeah. I mean, I think this, I think they do a really good example. And it is interesting because like the perspective between Tony Collette and her son of like, who is to blame is very different. Like their perspectives are, are blaming one another. Um, but like <clears throat> just the, like not being totally in reality in that moment, like he's like kind of disconnected and is like, just staring into space and, and not really like latching on to anything or like, he just like kind of walks into the house. You can hear the mom saying like, Oh, they're home. Good. As he's like walking into the bedroom. Um, but like this feeling of like, this can't really be real, um, in that state and just like, you know, the the trauma of it being so intense i mean trauma also does like really weird things to our brains and like messes with our memory and like who knows if he even like realized what had happened in in that immediate moment and like took him a bit to like you know come to terms with with what had happened um he actually, cause I think what happens is there's a deer in the road and he swerves out of the way, which we missed because we just full on skipped that scene. Um, so it's not just cause he's high. Um, but like, you know, there's something unexpected at play. And so like, you know, the adrenaline of like needing to swerve out of the way and then also accidentally killing his sister, like all of that just just sending him into this state of like not being fully in, in reality, like just being disconnected because it's so just so like, it's like full on crisis mode. Um, and like that state in general, like when, when folks go into shock, um, it doesn't last forever. Like it's, it's a very acute period of time. Um, but, uh, yeah, like it, you can, you're, you're all kinds of other like symptoms in your body can happen. Like your, your heart beat can be met, like your heart rate can be messed up. Um, your like organs and stuff, like it's your body's like just operating on like the most basic functions because like it can't process everything else that's going on. Um, so that's why like you might not remember certain things right away because like your body wasn't focusing on like creating the memory of the event. It was focusing on like 
stay literally staying alive. Um, and so like, you know, that, that kind of like zombie type walking that he's like doing in, in that immediate aftermath, like I think is a really good representation of what shock can look like. Awesome. And, and on that note, do you think all of the other mental illnesses that they were talking about or just the representation of grief in general is a great representation throughout this movie? Do you feel? Yeah, I think so. I think like <clears throat> you have one character who's been through grief like time and time again and seems almost desensitized to it, but clearly it's having an impact on her. Um, you see one character who's like trying to keep the family together and like doing whatever he can to, um, you know, to keep the peace. Um, you have the character who is experiencing like a great degree of guilt and is like just pretty shut down and disconnected from everything that's going on around him. Um, uh, yeah, I'll stick to, I'll stick to them. Yeah. I'll stick it, to the beheaded daughter. Right. Right. Cause it's also, or Paymon, Right. Cause also the desensitized uh, son, because he's also not really phased by the grandmother dying anyway. Like the father is like, you know, are you okay? And he's like, well, yeah, I mean, we didn't really connect or, or talk. And it's the same with his mother. Like the, yeah, she was there, but they really didn't have that kind of relationship. And so they're kind of desensitized to some form of death until it is Charlie. And that's kind of what sets other emotions into play and other traumas that like come around and anything that was kind of held in the background for the grandmother passing, like is now being released through Charlie's death, mm -hmm. uh, which is really interesting to see that trajectory of, of both of those uh, characters. But I feel like this movie, we need to talk like, what was the, the thing that stood out to you? Like the, the moments that you will hold on to in this movie, two things, your VI, your, uh, wow, VIP, wow, MVP. <laughs> <laughs> well, my very important poll. Uh, Ooh, uh, yikes. And also just like the standout movie scene for you in this brian we'll start with you okay the standout scene no matter what is the party nut scene into <laughs> him into her finding the body in the car ending with like the shot of the head on the side of the road Oof. now that is something i will never forget i will also never forget the first time seeing it and i will forever remember that sequence um this as soon as he held her in his arms and rushed to the car we fast forwarded it um oh, we fast forwarded okay. it we, yeah. I, we just like i know what happens i didn't need to see it again it's already seared in my memory unimportant for me to visualize that again um and i have two mvps of this movie my mm -hmm. first one is the dinner table scene. Okay. I think the dinner table scene says the most about these characters that leading into it and leading out to it and like what they're, what they're um, just where they are um, headspace wise and how they're feeling. It's also super cathartic as a viewer that they're finally unleashing and that the sun raises his voice for a second not even a lot then she explodes because because the death of her daughter through all of this trauma and tragedy that's the straw that broke the camel's back on tragedy and then the son comes back 
after she has that conversation, he comes back very calmly and asks her, like, but what about you? Like, re- referencing what is she to blame? And, and she mentioned, like, she didn't even want to go to the party. And then, like, and then the dad has to break it up. And then, because he knows that's going to just, like, un- pun-, pun intended, unleash hell. Um, and yeah. so that my second MVP, and I actually think um, one of the, like, true greats of this movie is Colin Stetson who did the uh, music who composed this movie Mm. Uh, that just tension in the strings and tension and all of that is um, just really, 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 really got me. Um, And I, I, and, and whatever there, and even in the, the last scene, which is, and we'll talk about Midsommar as well, that like, that last scene of just like the the shot of the head, his head. So like the whole time we've been watching beheadings and then the the last shot of this movie is a tight shot of his head, which is mm-hmm. like fascinating with the crown, you know, similar to like her in the flowers in, in, yes. mm-hmm. in Midsommar. Um, but just his score in this is just like spectacular. Yeah, I also want to do a deep dive into the score of this and uh, Midsummer because the chord progressions in Midsummer and how they ascend, like the five note uh, motif in this and a little bit or in Midsummer and a little bit in this one. I want to know if there's any kind of relevance to why they chose those specifics uh, in the notes because it's eerie and there's like a little bit of lightness to it but it's not you know like minor chords or things that we most mostly associate with horror movies so i need to invest in and looking why those musical cues are the way that they are because it's fascinating and haunting for sure totally but jamie what about you mvp favorite moments moments that will haunt you forever and ever and ever amen um i agree with brian's but i'm gonna pick different ones um a very unsettling moment that haunts me is when Tony Collette is trying to convince her husband to throw the possessed notebook into the fire and he declines and she grabs it, throws it in the fireplace and he immediately bursts into flames. And it's just like that, that's the, I mean, that is the moment that Tony Collette like becomes possessed because that was the, that was the last shred of hope that she had of like, I can, I can rectify this. And even accepting that she believed that she would be the one to burst into flames because of what happens earlier when she tries to throw it in and starts to notice that her sleeve catches fire and doesn't go out till she pulls the notebook out. So like this, this sense that like all hope is lost in that moment. And that is, that is what enables Paimon to possess her is, is her experiencing her loss of the last shred of hope that she had. Um, in terms of, uh, other moments that I think are really powerful, um, I think that sleepwalking scene, uh, when she says accidentally that she didn't want to be a mother um, and, you know, tried to miscarry. And like, it, it just, that's like a, I mean, that also I think is highly disturbing. Cause like you just feel so awful for Peter, even though it's a dream, but like that part of this heart wrenching of like him sobbing, saying like, why don't you love me? And why didn't you want me? Um, but I also, but like, 
as awful as that part is, it's also really effective in, in highlighting what is happening underlying again, this, this idea that, that the grandmother is, is trying to bring this demon King to, to, to life through the possession of, of a male heir. And, um, and like, again, like not paying attention to, you know, like why did your mom want you to have a kid so badly? And like, what, like pay attention to the signs. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's another solid scene. Yeah. What about you? I definitely was, uh, I was going to say the sleepwalking scene because this go around when she said, I didn't want to be your mother. It was just like, Oh my gosh. Cause especially when you already know what's going to happen. And so that moment in particular, like, damn, it's already gut wrenching enough. And now you're adding this like emotional aspect, even though it is just sleepwalking in a dream, technically you still just kind of feel all the feels for Peter. Cause he really just had no say in the matter. It was what it was going to be. But one of the scenes that really got me when I was in the movie theater and again, two of them was the piano string and she's like cutting her head off as she is like levitating. Sure. And just the fact that you don't even have to see her head come off, but you hear it. Yeah. Plop. The plop. (laughs) I was insert plop sound here. Actually play, play a little bit of levitating by Dua Lipa and then insert plop sound. I'm levitating. I was just unwell and then but then it led me to think of those videos that we watched of like how do you make horror movie sounds and I was like oh I wonder what sound that was yeah. <laughs> sure. like like how high did they drop that cabbage from yeah. <laughs> my cabbages oh my cabbages <laughs> Oh, yes, that. And then when the headless body is just floating up to the treehouse, something so unsettling and eerie. And it's not just the fact that it's a headless body, but mm-hmm. just how they filmed it, just rising up into the cabin. That just was not great for me. Uh, MVP would obviously, obviously be Tony, but also Anne dowd because she her her part in all of it and the fact that you really have no idea that she is kind of like the assistant or the next in line as the leader of the cult and how everything is just revealed at the end is just so intense because she is so kind and then there was um on the things you missed in hereditary when she was talking about her um, uh, grandchild who passed away and the chalkboard thing. But if you look closely when they're outside of the, the craft store and they meet up and that's when Anne was telling Tony about the seance and everything, her trunk is open Anne's trunk is open and you can see there's a chalkboard that she had just bought so hmm. she didn't have that, you know, she was buying all of it so that she oh, have her. That's a good catch. Yes. And I was like, that is, wow. People are really paying attention to these. Oh, speaking of catching creepy things, did you notice the breath when the son is like smoking weed in his room and the outside view you see and hear like a breath being expelled and it's very unsettling. 
Yes. And then the moment they come from uh, Charlie's funeral, I believe, or one of the funerals, one of the many funerals. Oh, the in the beginning. In the, I guess in the they're be- smiling at Charlie. Well, not that when they're coming oh. home, there's a shot of the empty, there's a shot of from inside the house and they're coming in. But before they come into the door, if you turn up the volume really high, you can hear footsteps. And I think that's when it's the first death because that's when Tony Collette goes into her grandmother's room because she's like, why is this open? Mm. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. The triangle on the ground or whatever. But it was because those cult people were like in the house, like, you know, writing, writing on the walls. walls. Yeah. Walls and all this stuff, but you can kind of hear like footsteps, like <coughs> out before they walk into the house. They were very nude and very creepy, smiley, very creepy, smiley. It reminds me of a courage, the cowardly dog episode of this creepy barber guy that had this creepy smile. I don't know if you watched that, that. show scared <laughs> the ever-loving crap out of me when I was a kid. But, like, I kept watching it. I don't even know why. It was so disturbing. No, it was because we were meant to do this. (laughs) 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 Curse the Cowardly Dog started it, and then that was our journey into, we're just going (laughs) to unsettling horror things, because why not? Sure. Do that. Great. Well, any any last thoughts or? Um, Yeah, I have a couple things here. Yeah. One, I always love a movie with an unreliable narrator. Uh, she is an unreliable narrator because of all the disassociation she does. So we're only getting 25% to 50% of the whole story, um, which I always appreciate because then you're thinking like, what, what's happening? Um, also, that sets up my one of my actual favorite parts of this movie. The first time I watched it was when she finds the body in the attic. Mm. And there's that when she tells not that part, but when she tells her husband, Steven, to look in the attic and he's like super skeptical and cynical about it. But like in any other movie, the body's not there anymore. He's like, what the hell are you talking about? But this movie, once he once this once he opens and the flies there and he sees it like, you know, that like something's about to go down. It just was another red herring for people not believing her, if you will. So I appreciated that. And I think one of my favorite things about this movie is the use of the miniatures as we talked about just the idea that the movie starts with the zoom in and then he, it just naturally goes into the story. And then even when they're at the funeral, the grandma's funeral, was it the grand? No, no. Charlie's funeral. And they're outside and they pan down below the grass into the dirt. That's almost like the graveyard was split in half and she's building it from like that side of it. And then every time there was like an exterior shot to set the scene I could not tell if sometimes it was the miniature and if Mm -hmm. it was real. And I really like that aspect of it. Like, are they just pawns? Like, and in this group, is this just, is this Tony Collette's or Annie's version of this? Is this the real version of this? Like what's actually happening? It just, it just adds to your skepticism of like what's actually real and what's not. And I thought that that really this time, even more than the first time, because I was able to like pay attention to these things more because I feel like during establishing shots of other movies, you're putting your thoughts together of first watches, I should say. Whereas this one, like I, I, I was just waiting for what comes next. And, and I really appreciated that this time. That's great. About you, you, Jamie, any lasting? (sighs) I mean, oh God, I need, I know I need more wine and I can't stop thinking about the like sound and like 
there's so many lights turned on because I I don't want to be caught off guard by a floating Tony Collette. I mean, actually, like <laughs> my hotel room, happy that there are other people around. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case something. <sighs> no, but it's yeah. it's great. His play, like you said, Brian, on like what is real and what is not. And that's actually what's going through all of their heads. You know, what is real and what is not is something that really makes this movie stand out and makes your anxiety just stay at a level 10 because you're kind of finding the, these things out with the characters, which are kind of the best kinds of movies, not the ones where you're like, oh, I know where this is going, or you have an idea of what's happening in this one. You just have no idea mm-hmm. what is going on and you have to just follow it in real time. And for me, that's what really makes my anxiety high, but also makes it a really sure. good that you have to follow what they're doing in real time. It's not like a slasher movie where you're like, yeah, everybody's, you know, going to die and the slasher is going to come again for the 18th sequel of the movie. It's just like, mm-hmm. nope, what is going to happen? We have to follow these people as they are and deal with whatever the ending is going to be, whether it is hopeful or not hopeful. That's all that we're left with. So, yeah. And I, I really like, knowing that a movie is a one-off yes so that there's an ending if that makes sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely yeah there's no uh <laughs> hereditary to return of the hereditaries <laughs> just coming from the grave awesome so rotten tomatoes yeah let's do rotten tomatoes tomatoes All right. Who's got a guess? Tell me your guess. I'm going to say a 97. Mm. Jamie? 93. All right. Well, Rotten Tomatoes has given it an 89%. So Jamie got closest. Um. The critics' consensus reads, Hereditary uses its classic setup as the framework for a harrowing, uncommonly unsettling horror film whose cold touch lingers beyond the closing credits. They were just too unsettled. That's why they gave it a low score. Which is weird because this critics' consensus reads like it's in the 90s, like it's in a solid 90s, but whatever. Okay. Whatever tomatoes right anyway um <laughs> should we do the four s's absolutely absolutely just when that All right out of my system all right we have Scare, uh, skulls, scares, shakes, and suggestions. So let's start, Nikisha, with you. Let's do some, uh, let's do some skulls. Yeah. The, well, if we're basing it off of just like our theme of grief, then I would give it a 10 <laughs> because. This is all of the grief, all of the emotions, all of the traumas in different aspects. And I think that it carried it very well and that it gave its point across of 
the absolute worst thing that could happen while you're grieving? Um, I'm going to give it uh, an eight um, because I, I agree that I think they do like a really good job at demonstrating, you know, what grief can look like, but also obviously there's like the supernatural bits. So <laughs> right. yeah, I'm going to give it a eight as well. All right. So now we're going to scares, jump scares. How scary was it? Did it get you at all? Uh, Nikisha, let's go back to you. I'm going to base this off of my first time watching it and also give yeah, it sure. because yeah, I mean, knowing, I will say though, the, again, piano string cutting head off still got me even if the charlie beheading in the street didn't get me the other one did so i'm gonna make it a 10 (laughs) jamie um i'm gonna give it i think another eight um because like tony collette hovering in backgrounds is like horrifying um but i don't like i i think the scares are less jump scary and more just like very unsettling. So I'm curious to talk about shakes next. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give it a seven <coughs> because there are some jump scares in it that got me. Um, but this was more of an unsettling, which I think relates more to shakes for me. Um, so I, I, if you don't mind, I, I, this is a shakes. This is a 10. I'll never forget this movie ever, whether it's, whether it's just the ending or, I mean, honestly, the, the, the pole beheading alone should give this movie like a 20, but I'll give it a 10 since that's, that's our ranking. <laughs> yeah. 10s across the board, honestly, because wow. I, I never want to watch this movie again. It's fine. Right. I'm good. I, I am totally fine watching it these two times. It's yeah. 10. <laughs> Jamie, 10? Just 10, a thousand, but 10. Oh, a thousand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. I, I will never, ever forget this movie. <laughs> All right. So what can we even suggest for this? Uh, Jamie, let's start with you. Yeah. So I was like doing a lot of uh, Googling um, and trying to think of what would be something good to suggest other than Mitomar. Um But so pretend like I didn't say that. Um, I went with Suspiria. Now, I haven't seen the OG Suspiria, which is supposed to be better, supposedly. Um, But the new Suspiria is still a pretty wild and wacky movie that also deals with the occult. Um, So I I would suggest that one. Nikisha? I'm only suggesting this because I was watching an interview with Ari Aster and he said it was one of his influences Sure. for this, uh, which makes sense. But Rosemary's Baby, because sure. the not believing the women and then everybody dying because they don't believe the women. Everyone believe the women so you can survive. Always, always, always. <laughs> I am going to, you said uh, Rosemary's Baby. Um, I am going to go with, this is tough. I I was thinking The Witch, but I already suggested The Witch for The Conjuring 3. Mm. Um, Which, by the way, they did conjure something in this movie. They did. 
Yeah, you, they did. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm I'm gonna go with it's really not the same at all, but I'm gonna go with this is hard. I was thinking the ritual potentially like that's something that we could do. I'm trying to run through my head um, because I was just double checking if I did the witch or not, um, but I did. So yeah, I'm just going to go with that, I guess. Um, A fair choice. Yeah. I mean, or I could just say Midsommar and watch it for next episode. <laughs> Jamie didn't do it, so I'll do it. <laughs> oh, you know what? Or do we talk maybe the skeleton key? Oh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to scrap. I'll use the ritual for something else <laughs> that's like takes place in the woods. I'm going with skeleton key. Nice. Because there's a little bit of gaslighting in that. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of like, do you believe in certain things? It doesn't, you spoiler alert, it doesn't even. in certain things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to go with the skeleton key. Awesome. Well, I <laughs> That wraps things up for Hereditary. Uh, viewers, beware. Watched it by this point. <laughs> yeah. Don't lose your heads. Don't Ooh. Like six. <laughs> <laughs> Where can, well, first off, you, should got, you guys should follow us <laughs> on the Instagram and the Twitter. We are at Talk Horror Pod, P-O-D, on Twitter and Instagram. Give us suggestions. Let us know how you're feeling. Let us know if you're listening and what episodes that you like. You know, shout us out. Mm-hmm. And, and where Only can- the episodes you like. We oh. don't want to know about the ones you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, if you like us, please share with us what you liked about and what uh, movies that you liked that we covered. And give us suggestions on other movies that uh, we could cover, potentially cover in our future seasons. And Brian, where can they listen to us? Yeah, they can find us on things like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, rate and review us there. Five stars, please. And And thank you. And we're signing off with the beautiful sound, Jamie, of her, what is the sound of hereditary? Also, whatever, you know, beheading yourself with piano wire sounds like. Or plop. (laughs) Plop, plop. (laughs) The cabbage falling. That's what that's. Yeah, the cabbage. Oh, my cabbages. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. Thank you.